0: I'm with Kazike Prince, founder and CEO of Jelani Consulting, LLC, where he is a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant working with businesses and nonprofits. Welcome to the show, Kazike.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you being here.
0: Absolutely. So for starters, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got your start. What was the What's the origin story of Kazike?
1: Well, you know, um, uh, <laughs> it's complicated, but... You know, I'm a, I'm a trained psychologist. Uh, I've been a psychologist since uh, 2003. Went to the York, University of Georgia out there in the, in the sticks of Athens, Georgia. Uh, mm. But I've been doing this work around diversity, equity, inclusion for 25 plus years. Uh, I worked initially in substance abuse education and treatment. Uh, also worked in higher education off and on for a number of years. Worked with some nonprofits. Used to work with a uh, Catholic agency as a social worker in the Bronx. Uh, so I've had a, a variety of different experiences, which has been really rich for me. But uh, I'll say I've been running my company, uh, Jelani Consulting for the last 13 years, really focusing and honing down on this conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And to be honest, I think the reason I got started in this work, because I found that uh, they were just very difficult conversations for people to have, whether it was about race, uh, gender, Uh, LGBTQ uh, concerns, and I had found that my conversations that I was having with people around alcohol and drug treatment were just as difficult, if not more difficult. Um, And so doing this work around diversity, equity and inclusion just seemed like a prime opportunity to encourage people to, to really engage in a conversation and dialogue and really figure out ways of making a difference in their lives. Because I think the biggest challenge is that people want a sense of fairness. They want a sense of, of, of right and wrong. But how to have those conversations when you're talking about racism, when you're talking about people losing their lives because of the injustices they're experiencing, it's very, very difficult. And so I found that I enjoyed and felt motivated to have that conversation with people. And to be honest, a lot of people don't know this about me, but there was a time I thought I was going to become a minister and becoming a clinician was part of my kind of, um, for lack of a better word, part of my ministry, but specifically mm-hmm. focusing on issues of diver- diversity, equity inclusion, so people feel more empowered, feel more um, alive, uh, feel more actualized. However, it just feel like the, the right pathway for me. And so I've just been really enjoying being able to be a witness to that experience for a lot of people and support them in their efforts. And from a business perspective, I want them to make more money because I know organizations that do this well just do a better job of of making money and 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 doing the business that they're they're focused on
0: yeah, i there's a lot to unpack there, and I, I'd like to start with you use the word difficult and how truly difficult navigating racism and privilege is just because it's so multilayered and complex. And, you know, there, there's even taxonomy and language people don't understand. There's, there's fears about, you know, how they might show up and how they don't want to be labeled. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. no one wants to be labeled as a racist, but you know, the fact that we're part of a racist system just (laughs) pretty much makes us part of it, right? Like we we're existing in this thing, so we're contributing in some way. And so I'm just, just kind of curious, like, if you have advice, because I, I, the one thing I run into tons when I am even, you know, I don't, I don't I'm, I'm like you, my work doesn't center on this, but I bump into it a lot. And mm-hmm. the thing I hear is that, well, I'm not a racist. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious how, if you have any advice for the listeners, you know, if they're trying to talk to a coworker or a peer or a loved one around racism and privilege, how do you have that conversation in a way that helps people understand that, that there's there's multiple levels of this happening and so they can show up and, and be an ally.
1: I really appreciate you asking this question because it is it's first acknowledging this is a difficult conversation <laughs> a lot of people say, well mm-hmm. just just get out there and start just all you got to do is just talk I'm like mm this is um this is kind of like dealing with money there's this quote out there this says messing with my money is like messing with my emotions and and this is this is important I don't want to give the impression like this is Necessarily, always going to be easy. I think the more you do it, the easier it does get. But the first thing I start off with is acknowledging that what we're trying to attack are systems that are in place. We have institutions that are in place. And we're less concerned about attacking people. But we're really trying to challenge systems that perpetuate the biases that many of us are frustrated by. So whether it's racism Mm -hmm. or sexism. This is not about going after a person who I can debate all day about whether they're being racist or not, and that's going to be an ongoing dialogue. I mean, there's still people debating whether President Trump has done anything racist or not. But the problem is that, that you're going to always you to always run into a challenge of trying to prove to people that they are racist because it's, it's a personal kind of dialogue or personal attack. And, and, and it's hard to have that discussion. Um, it's harder, I should say.
0: Where's that threshold, right? Like, right. where do you move from being not... Re- it's not It's not binary. Right. I think that's the problem. People think of it as binary.
1: Right, right. And, 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 and if you get engaged in that conversation on an individual basis, it's just, it's very difficult and, and, and oftentimes it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't lead you anywhere.
0: You're yeah, not fruitful, yeah.
1: But if you're saying, hey, we have institutions in place that have these results, like your hiring practices that led to a disproportionate number of men being hired compared to women, or you have the absence of people of color in certain positions at all, or leadership in specifically. or when So when you're looking at the numbers, you can say, we know there's something going on in the process because we see these people missing in leadership, missing in the organization. We know that there's problems in the tech industry because when we look across the industry, There's an absence of people of color in leadership. And when you look at Fortune 500 companies, you're seeing the same absence of people who are just as talented, who are just as smart, but they're not in those positions. There's not a critical mass of people of color or women in certain industries that are led by mostly men. And so at minimum, you can say, the numbers show me there's a bias, which probably indicates that there's a system in place that led to that bias. Now it's all our responsibility to get engaged to figure out how do we change that, that wave that led to that ch- to that present situation and create a new situation or a new dynamic. And so what I say, you're, what, you're, what equity is fundamentally about is about changing programs, policies, uh, uh, and, and procedures that led to the biases that we have in the first place.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about what you notice when you're working with clients the, with these policies and procedures, like what's the low hanging fruit? I'm sure that you, there's something that you see just over and over and over again when you start working with a new company, like, oh, yep, it's there there it is again. Like mm-hmm. we need to fix that. Is there something that that um, is just kind of ubiquitous that just needs to be, that you think would just be great if everyone just like paid attention to? Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> One of the things I've learned early on is that one of the best indications of, a, of an organization's investment and engagement with this conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, not just the conversation, I mean that in a very obtuse way, but their engagement with this work is when they're willing to put money towards it. If mm-hmm. you're not putting any money towards it, this is not a priority. And when I ask, people ask me, well, how much money are we talking about? I said, well, like anything that's important to me, I invest a substantial, uh, a, uh, there's a substantial investment, at least 1% of our profits should be going Mm -hmm. towards this work. So if I wanna build a new building, if I wanna start a really major initiative that's gonna change the culture of our organization, putting zero dollars to it is a guarantee that nothing's going to happen. But if I say Mm -hmm. I'm gonna put X percent of my profits towards this effort, it's gonna guarantee something's gonna happen. And what I'm also looking for is, uh, what's my return on investment? And we know from the research that the return on investment can be anywhere from every dollar that you spend to about seven dollar to seven to ten, fifteen dollar return, and we already know mm-hmm. that, right? And so those are the kinds of basic things I'm looking. How much are you? I'm looking at their literally their budget going. How much, not time, not volunteers going out doing community service. How much of your money have you invested in this? And then I want to see your staff that's committed to this. And if I can see that, that gives me a sense of what your investment may have been up to that point. And if you had zero dollars, that's fine. Then my job is to help you reimagine (laughs) your budget so you can make this a priority.
0: Yeah. You know, the thing we run into most when thinking about this kind of work is how people show up in meetings. And, you know, I think that's the hallmark of true inclusion. Mm-hmm. And as we think about the work we do as facilitators, our job is to make sure everyone's included. Mm-hmm. And ideally we do it in a way where we're not just going around round robin and calling on everyone. Like, you know, can we create like really dynamic and truly inclusive types of scenarios? And mm-hmm. So I'm just curious, like, is that something that you're noticing and that you're starting to see clients of yours starting to have more inclusion in their meetings or more contributions from everyone?
1: You know, when I think about people's attempts to be more inclusive, the good thing that I'm seeing is that people are trying to be more and more creative about how to create those more inclusive environments, whether it's just having check-ins, even Mm -hmm. for some of these more religious-oriented organizations, them starting with prayer, not in the way of saying, okay, this is one way of praying, but just saying, I want to open it up for us to center ourselves, whether Mm -hmm. it be from your own faith tradition or another tradition or, or no tradition whatsoever. But it's a way of getting away from one way of running a meeting, which tends to be very um, output or outcomes oriented. We need to ach- achieve these goals during this meeting at this time versus relationship building, which is also important, right? Or it's it's getting to know each other. So it's, it's, it's just, and, and creating that inclusive environment means having a different kind of exchange that's not, you know, sometimes meetings might be led by a different person uh, each meeting, so it's, you have a different feel of things. But the idea is that you're not just using the meetings as a way of engaging with one another, but also uh, meeting one-on-one or smaller groups, but just really being creative about how do we connect, conduct business with the same goal in mind of, yes, we want to make money and improve our operations and so on and so forth, but we're finding that there's different pathways of doing that work if it's done well.
0: Absolutely. I, you, know, you know, what you're talking about too reminds me of kind of creating more trust and potentially more psychological safety on a team. You know, if, if you build rapport and you build understanding, then people are less likely to be, you know, judgmental or snappy. And, you know, as, as we know, those dynamics lead to, you know, people withdrawing and, and not contributing in meaningful ways. So I'm curious, like when you see teams that are trying to make efforts, but maybe the inclusion's not, just not there. Um, what are some of the common issues you're noticing or, or things that are holding them back? Well, it's
1: funny you say that because the biggest issue that I find is that people overestimate their uh, ability. You know, Simple term is cultural competence, but more, more accurately is they overestimate their ability to navigate across cultures effectively. Uh, they think they're in one place they think because they made an investment. They're super excited about this work. They know it's the right thing to do. They made the business case for it. So they're totally invested. Uh, however, they don't have the skills to actually navigate those conversations effectively. When subjects around race and racism come up or other issues, they're finding themselves using a lot of their lizard brain where they're, they're fighting, fleeing or freezing. And so when those conversations come up, their, their ability to actually navigate is, is the, really diminished because, you know, they haven't figured out for themselves personally how to sort through the, the, the moving parts that are going on. And so even though their, their heart's in the right place, their ability hasn't caught up with their heart. And so a lot of the times it's, it's sitting with them and really developing the skills that are necessary to have the conversation. But I would say the other issue is, again, I might have the, the right ideas, and I'll use one example real quickly. Uh, a lot of organizations want to recruit and they want to recruit more diverse people, but they don't have any relationships with the people that they want to recruit. How are you gonna recruit more people of color, whether it be black, Latino, or other groups, if in your own sphere of your spheres of influence and in your life you know no one who's black or Latino or Asian? Now your first step is to go build those those relationships first, then tackle your goal around recruitment of that population. Mm -hmm. And so they they prematurely go out there and start talking to all the black and brown people they can find on the internet. And they wonder why people are looking at them crazy, going, "Who are you, and why are you calling me?" <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, those relationships are critical. And I and I just I I can't I can't sleep on the importance of taking those ten steps back first to make sure you have all the things you need in place first before you tackle some of the big goals that you might be uh, trying to attempt to to deal with.
0: You know, it makes total sense because if you think about it, it's like two dynamics, right? On a purely Unrelational standpoint and a purely like mechanical and operational standpoint. You have to have a pipeline. <laughs> if you don't have a pipe, and I always tell people, if you're trying to recruit, uh, if you're trying to hire today, you should have started recruiting four months ago. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not going to have very good candidates, and they certainly won't be diverse because you're just finding whatever falls out of the woodwork, and that's probably going to be through your network and people you know, and then. Also, it really resonates with me because if you're on the relational side, if you're starting to understand these people, relate to them, you're going to be able to A, change your policies, B, design a nice looking container that these people will not want to be inside of. Because often I see people wanting to, it's, it's a lot harder if you don't start early. If you start later and it's 10 dudes in a garage and you're like trying to hire your first woman, they're going to be like, I don't want to be the first woman in this like gym locker.
1: Yeah, and, and it's funny you say that because when you ask people of color and women about going out and recruiting other people of color and women, they have no problem doing it because their networks already exist. They already have yeah. the relationships. Just like with white men who have a great idea and they're sitting in the garage and they're like, "Hey, let's let's do this." What they're really good at is recruiting other people like themselves, but if they're going to recruit anyone that's not like themselves, they got to be asking themselves, if I don't know these folks already, I need to spend the, the, cap, the cultural capital necessary, the investment that's necessary to, to achieve it well. And what I know, and the thing is, it can be done. It can be done, So not easily, because it's going to take time. It, and for some organizations, it may be four months, it may be a year. Because, I'll be honest, people of color, and and, and I can't speak for everyone, but some people are a little suspicious. (laughs) They're like, Mm -hmm. "Hmm." and you want to use my context so you can achieve your goals, and and do I really want to work in your organization? Because y'all seem a little iffy about this diversity thing in the first place. So that's why that trust piece is so important, because they want to know, I would speak for myself, I want to know that you're invested, not just for the short term, but the long-term gain other people that you're trying to recruit.
0: And why me? Mhm. Mm-hmm. Right. I think, you know, I, I really haven't heard the word tokenism thrown around in a while, but like, that's like a, a very bad thing. And we want to support communities and, and underrepresented individuals. But if we're just checking a box and then not putting the work in and, and it, you know, it's, it doesn't, we're not looking carefully at who it is and making sure that they're great for the role. Then, then like, that's actually doing a disservice for everyone.
1: Well, and that's what we, we experienced one or two generations ago with affirmative action. Hence, why people don't even like using that term anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, matter of mm-hmm. fact, how, how many? When's the last time you heard someone say affirmative action, right? Yeah. Uh, and Not
0: unless <laughs> someone was being derogatory,
1: exactly. Know. And and it was because we went about it so haphazardly. We threw people in positions that one, they weren't given a chance; they were underprepared, or sometimes overprepared. But their voice was small and and, and diminished in so many different ways, and so they it just became a, a self fulfilling prophecy of some of the troubles and the thing is that's the still the struggle we have today because people will do a lot of the same things we've seen for generations now where they set up people for failure and wonder why they had the result they had and and, and I think one of the big things I think we, we're faced with now as a country is that what is the, what is the responsibility of business leaders uh, especially whether they're big or small to invest in their talent because think about how many people you know in your life who are really not that smart, really not that talented, but we give them all the graces necessary to be talented, to be really great, because someone sits with them and talks with them, gives them the inside scoop, they, they get, they, they're they treated like the special child, the golden child, and could you imagine if that happened for more people, particularly people of color, who never get that, how it would make a difference in their lives, and how they would be successful, and that's the kind of, to me, that's what equity is all about, it's not just giving it's not giving the kid who was going to go to college anyhow an opportunity. It's giving a kid who never thought that was even a chance an opportunity, and not just to go to college, but I want them to be chair of the Federal Reserve. You know, mm-hmm. I want them to be super successful, not just get by. And, and I think that's the struggle. It's like somehow I should pop, pat myself on the back because I got this kid out of high school. He was going to do that anyhow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't need you for that. He, it may have been harder, but he was going to do it because he, he was already directed to do that. But if you say, no, I'm going to invest in this this young person and I'm going to make sure they not just go to college and go to one of the best colleges and not just that, but they're going to get a great job that, that they can pay it forward. That's a different kind of investment.
0: Man, that's, You're talking about capitalization of society. You know, how do we raise up? I mean, you, if you really think about the broader impacts of this work, it's not just how do we improve ROI and profits for a company. But it's really capitalization of society. We as a civilization will will rise up in ways that are, you know, unprecedented if we can come together and work and, and collaborate and also keep people from getting just like ripped up by the system. I'm really excited about what Oregon's doing. You know, the fact that there are people that are just getting thrown into jail for petty things just because they they had a, a bout with some drugs, and the next thing you know, they can't get out of this rap sheet they're in. So I'm I don't know. I think I'm really excited about where programs like that and the work you're doing. Can really just help us as a civilization.
1: Well, and, and, the, and the thing is, I think that sometimes gets lost in this conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion because there's the, the, the troubling and depressing and heart-wrenching stories of, of oppression that we we hear. Right? Uh, we we hear we watch movies and we hear stories, and then we're just like, man. But what this what this the movement is really about is exactly what you just described. It's going against convention being less concerned about punishing people, and being more about lifting every boat. Uh, In higher education, they talk about inclusive excellence. Mm. And what they mean, because the the fear is that we're somehow lowering the standards to include other people, when in truth, we're actually raising the standards, we're raising the opportunities for, for profitability by expecting excellence in everything that we do, And we can only do that if we provide an inclusive environment for the success of every individual. And so that mindset is a change, a switch. But to be honest, it's been one that's been helpful for some folks who have been kind of, you know, know, kind of poo-pooing this whole thing. And I'm like, no, this is about making money and being better at what we do. Because that's where innovation, that's where uh, good ideas and creativity comes out of that. And so there's people who are being straight up. Like totally questioning all this, but when you talk about the the bottom line or being more mission uh, focused, they're they're convinced and they see it. I mean, that's the great thing about today versus just 10 or 15 years ago. We have the numbers that show that this approach is very effective in creating the kind of um, profitability or if not profitability, mission focused kind of agenda.
0: Yes, I, I. Here's the thing: the values have to be aligned. The value of the company is we need more profits, or we need to grow, or whatever outcome the company is seeking, or or the nonprofit that the organization's going to have values, and they're going to have a focus. And if and if you can line align with that, then that's where you'll be successful with any change initiative, right? And I so I, I think you're spot on with the focus it has to be on revenue or the mission, and I believe that. Any of those things are going to be better when you enable people to, to do their best work, and they're doing. People take pride in doing a good job. That is in human nature, and if you can put people in a situation to do better work, I mean, that's just going to be a better environment for everyone.
1: You know what's funny about this too? You know what the other thing that drives this. Uh, you know we've done a really good job with our young people, and trying to create these more collaborative teams. They work on projects together. They. You know, in a lot of schools, they do project based learning where they can go out and explore and find their own learning opportunities. And you know what the the millennials have come into work saying, we expect you to do this. So forget Mm -hmm. what the Generation X that I represent. We come in with the same mentality that we were given by our parents. You know, just do the work. Right. Don't worry about the personal. Just do the work. Millennials are coming in after we train them <laughs> and, and say, you know what, we want an environment that is uh, socially conscious, that's tackling big issues. That's, I mean, I have a, a client who works in, in the tech field and says they want to be a part of a community that's making a difference. It doesn't matter if they're making widgets. <laughs> they want to make sure that those widgets and the people who are part of their organization are doing good in the world. And that's what they're demanding. So you have very talented, smart people from various backgrounds saying, if I'm going to work here, y'all better be doing
0: something. (laughs) Right. Yes. Making a difference. I love it. I want to come back to something that I've been thinking about lately. And are you familiar with the truth and reconciliation that happened in South Africa? Oh
1: yes, very much so. Thank you for bringing that
0: up. And so I just think there's a massive opportunity with, with the change in in leadership right now to make that a national focus. And I'm just kind of curious, like, how you think that could play out if if we had a national focus on on doing some work like that here in the U.S.?
1: You know, I fundamentally believe that we as an American uh, community culture, um, it would be to our best interest to really invest in a racial reconciliation, racial healing process. It may not look like what they did necessarily exactly what they did in South Africa, but there's something that's very important here that needs to be uh, kind of called out. Uh, we are still a country that still doesn't tell the truth about the Civil War. We still don't tell the truth about what slavery was about. We still have a, too much of the population who believes that the Civil War wasn't about slavery. We have too much of the population who just doesn't want to acknowledge the history of slavery and racism that made this country successful. That this country was, in many ways, promoted on the backs of black and brown and, and other people. To be where we are today, and that unwillingness to acknowledge that, and just kind of say, you know what, that's a real thing. Um, we need to have a, a vehicle or a means of having that honest conversation with one another, uh, and because there's still some some deep generational grieving that's going on around that, and there needs to be also some some, some opening up of some hearts and some minds that have been totally closed. Not necessarily always intentionally, sometimes it's just, I didn't know. Because the system is set up to keep people blind. The system is set up to keep people ignorant. And, and there's too many people, in my opinion, after you know, being around for as many hundreds of years as we have been in a the country, there's too many people walking around, not their own fault, who are like, you know what, I didn't know. They, they saw George Floyd die and they're like, I didn't know. And it's not their fault because the system was set up for them to be blissfully ignorant. And then you got all these black and brown people and, and women too who are like, let me tell you something. <laughs> let me tell you about my reality. And, and one of the best things is last weekend, uh, Dave Chappelle was on Saturday Night Live.
0: Amazing. And it was
1: amazing how he was just telling the truth in so many ways. And, and the like reason... <laughs> and what I loved about it is that and he said it, he says, I know many of you wouldn't be listening to me if I wasn't telling jokes, but boy, does he use his platform of being a genius a comedian to really uh, tell his story. And uh, to me, that's part of the, the truth and reconciliation, right? That's part of calling something out. What we used to say in the black church is you gotta name it and claim it, you know, shame the devil and tell the truth. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and to me, until you are willing to do that, it's hard to reconcile things. Because you got too much a part of the community, the, the national stage, who are just, just denying the stuff even happened. <laughs> and it's like, and and you somehow want me to work with you? You want me to be on the mm-hmm. same page with you? And you're not even willing to acknowledge? And the thing is, the truth of the matter is, and let me just re, 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 real clear, we've gone on as a country unwilling to do that and we've, we, we still function. But if we really want to be a more powerful country that's able to really commit ourselves and create the kind of change and be the the, the, the powerful uh, kind of entity that I think we, we want to be, if we're willing to have that conversation, the result at the end is, is just, it's, 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 it, it may feel like magic or a miracle, but I think what people are already experiencing is a sense of, man, we're so much better off now having that conversation than avoiding the conversation.
0: 100%. And I think the avoiding the conversation is what's made it so tenuous. And it's created situations where you've got good people, that are blocked it's almost like having a psychological block where people go to a therapist and i'm not a psychologist but you know the way i envision it is like there's some trauma that's happened in past life and they can't even unlock it Mm -hmm. and it's because they know that there's there's racism in their family like their grandparents or their parents and they're ashamed of it but like admitting that is them admitting they're a bad person And they can't go there. You know, that's just not safe for them to do. And so that's a hard thing for people to unlock. And so when I see some people act out and push back, I I have some sympathy for them. But also, it's like, man, how do we, we can't keep on like this. There has to be a way to move past that.
1: It's funny you mentioned this dealing with racial trauma um, and the blocks that we have experienced. Because, again, the system is set up. And when I mean the system, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the system of white supremacy is set up. To, to, to not even mention that white people have experienced trauma around race. That there's serious trauma that is been that's not just for the individual, but it's generational. Mm-hmm. Because if I am doling out pain and venom and hate towards a group of people and it happens for generations, you can't tell me that doesn't have an impact on me. Because chances are that venom is not being just directed at black people or brown people. It's directed at spouses. It's directed at children. That venom is being spread across. And until you're willing to recognize that and call it out and then ask yourself what you're going to do about it and take some responsibility for it. I mean, as much as, as and I'll use myself as a man, you know, it is hard for me to acknowledge that in my family background, there's some major just really bad things that have happened in the name of manhood mm-hmm. uh, and as, as as crippling as it may feel and, and, and daunting to kind of imagine all of that, I can't be the best father I want to be to my daughter and my son until I reconcile some of that yeah you know, and to me as the, as a country around race and other issues, how can we be a good friend? a good neighbor, a, a competent government who is unwilling to just acknowledge that, not just acknowledge it, but do something about it, because the pain is so, like, like we're we're too weak to deal with it, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the truth is, we're so powerful, we're so powerful as people, if we just take the risk to go out there and do it, and, we, and I think we sometimes tell ourselves we can't handle it, no, 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 it's, it's too rough, it's too much, and I'm like, no, you, Look at what we've dealt with as a country over the last 20, 30, 40 years. We've we've dealt with some really challenging situations. I am confident in our ability that we have the strength, that we have the the virtue and the means to do this work. But I think we tell this secret that somehow we're too weak to handle it. It's too much to bring up the past. And I'm like, no, no, I don't think that's true at all. Because we deal with really tough, tough stuff all the time. And I think we can deal with this too.
0: You know, I'm part of a Slack group of consultants and when the George Floyd situation, it really was erupting, like right there in the thick of it. We all started to have an internal dialogue around what are the, what are the policies around this group and are there any inherent, we were all reading how to be anti-racist and we were thinking about what are the racist policies and around this group and, and how did this group come together and there was one gentleman in the group, we had a long conversation around privilege And he had, he's a white gentleman, and he had real issues with that term, and him being labeled as having privilege. And I think it comes back to my comment about binary because I think he, he saw it as like someone labeling him as having privilege because he said, you know, I grew up poor. I was right there with a bunch of poor black people. We didn't distinguish between white or black. We were all just poor. And the point we were trying to make was like, look, I know you worked hard to get an education and to, to dig yourself out of that situation. But you, you have to be honest with yourself that being white definitely helped you on that journey. Now you don't have as much privilege as like someone who's born in Beverly Hills and their father is a director and just without any audition they're just in the film or whatever. Like that's a whole different this paradigm. And I, you know, I, around the same time it was right, it was before this whole conversation. I saw this really interesting. It was like this group of children were in a field, like they were outside doing doing some games. Like it looked like a summer camp kind of thing. And the counselor was like telling everyone, everyone started off on a line together. And they said, take one step forward if your parents could afford textbooks when you're in elementary school. And then, and then it just got more and more tech, take one step forward. If you have, if you attended college, take one step forward, if you were given a credit card while you were in college, you know, (laughs) it was just like, boom, 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 one after the other until all of a sudden, like one kid is still standing at the starting point and they're all just vastly spread across the field. And it's like, that that's to me what privilege is about. It's not about me having privilege and you not. It's about like, wow, people are on various parts of this playing field and it's totally and the, the, there is no equity.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it, I think for a lot of people who, who live with privilege, one, it's like, I remind people privilege is like being a fish in the ocean and you realize all of that ocean water that you've never paid attention to is your privilege. And it's just, you're breathing it and you're living it, and now you've come to the understanding that it's there. And it's a little bit of a shock to the system. But when I talk to my, you know, my, my friends who happen to be white and, and poor, they, they'll have the same argument. And, and, and I think one of the big issues here is that they'll see the stats that say that a, a, a white man with a high school diploma on average can make more money than a black man with a PhD, on average. Those, the numbers are clear. But for them, that's not their lived experience. Right. Right. Their lived experience is, I bust my butt. It was rough. I was eating government cheese and spam like the best of them. So who are you to point the finger at me about privilege? I didn't have not have privilege. And I'm like, you know, and my experience has been for those people, oftentimes it takes someone else with lived experience over a period of time to make the case for why it affirms their experience, but also give some insight that something about you being white gave you opportunities that the same person with the same talent as you will not receive. And and they'll see it in those kinds of exercises you just described. They'll look at their friend who's sitting right next to them, who they know is just as talented they are, and be like, oh, wow, they, they, wow. And so I, I, I try to be graceful and patient with folks like that. It can be a little frustrating, don't get me wrong, but, It's not until they see someone they're intimately connected to, who they trust, they're able to give them some insights that the numbers just won't give them. Because what they're looking Mm -hmm. is for that lived experience that tells them, maybe you're not, your, your experience is maybe not quite accurate.
0: Yeah. And that's the problem with statistics, right? It's like, it has nothing to do with my lived experience. And I love that you brought up that word because that's part of the taxonomy around DEI that I stumbled into, I don't, I don't know, maybe three or four months ago and I, it really resonated with me. It's like, how can you, I, and, and the, the framing that I learned it in, someone was like making claims about this and that. And then the retort was, how can you argue with someone's lived experience? I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> like if we're really going to, if we're really going to be tolerant and support people, we have to embrace people's lived experience, even if we don't understand it. And like, you know, that happened to them. So maybe we could be a little understanding. And I guess I want to maybe end with kind of circling back on how we design better meetings and better experiences for our employees that are inclusive and supportive, collaborative. And a lot of the work we do is based around design thinking Mm -hmm. and and using human-centered design practices because, you know, these tools, these techniques were created to design things for humans. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Our employees are humans. (laughs) And if we want to design experiences for them, we can turn those same tools we use externally for products and point them inward so we can have empathy. And you know, my theory is like if we want to create an inclusive situation, let's do some ethnography, let's understand where people are coming, what they're hoping, what their fears are, like what (laughs) what they're looking for in the world, what they need, and if we can understand that then it becomes crystal clear what we need to do it's, it's like it's because was asking me with this remote environment how do we support our employees with children and mm. you know everyone's and i kind of it was in one of our weekly facilitation practices and i was sitting back just listening people had a lot of great ideas and then i asked the gentleman i said have you spoken with them about what they need <laughs> and there was just a little bit of silence and i was like I think you should probably start there, you know, just interview all of them and find out what are their schedules? What challenges are you may, As soon as you start to sketch with them, to talk with them, to get curious with them, then you can start to understand their needs. And then that's how you make inclusive. Like if you, if you are addressing needs, that is ultimately <laughs> inclusive because everyone's going to be taken care of. And so I'm just kind of curious, that's been a real epiphany for me over the last year um, especially as I've seen more and more HR people showing up at design conferences and stuff. And it just gets me really excited to think about a discipline that's you know, typically unfunded and, um, and how, do we, how do we shift that conversation? So I, I, don't, I wonder if that overlaps with your work at all and what you've been noticing.
1: Actually, it does overlap with my work because uh, whether it's a design thinking approach or whatever, but as you know, one of the first steps is collecting data right hmm. and oftentimes we forget to go ask our employees what their experiences are like and and the thing is you don't want to overwhelm your employees with a you know 17,000 item questionnaire <laughs> you you want to give you know nice, nice, nice little pulse uh, kind of surveys you know with maybe five or six questions that really help to give some insight of what their experiences are but let's also not sleep on the importance of those interviews And sitting down with people and saying hey what's 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 been your lived experience on this area and by receiving that insight and that those perspectives and collecting that data uh, and making sure you have people at the table (laughs) who are uh, who are part of the decision-making process so it's not just asking people but actually making sure they're part of the conversation at the table i think what you're going to find out are the solutions that folks are looking for because what makes work at over at X organization may not work at Y, but the, with the process that's gonna be similar for both organizations, is their willingness to go out and ask their employees and have leadership in place who are gonna make these things come to fruition and be willing to take the risks that are necessary because I think what we've been, what we've been faced with the coronavirus pandemic, and I would also say the racism pandemic, is that um, we are forced to look at work differently. Uh, because people are at home with their kids and they're, and a lot of us, some of us don't have partners who can support us so we can work just on work. And so people have had to be really creative. And what I want to know is how they did it. You know, how did you run between raindrops in the middle of a, a thunderstorm and still got things done? Or did you? And, and it wasn't even realistic to expect you were going to do that in the first place. Uh, and what's the end result? What are we going to find out after all this kind of settles down a little bit? We got the, you know, we got the vaccine out, and everyone's finally settled down. I think what we're going to find out is that people suffered a lot through this. We're going to find out our kids suffered because the educational system fell apart. We're going to find out that many parts of our economy fell apart, and we were just living on a, a, a lifeline. Uh, the question I'll be asking myself, and I hope, and my friends is. What out of this, this pandemic, what did we learn that we can use to make ourselves a better orga- a bigger organization, a better community? Because right now, I think what we're not facing is the, the carnage of mm-hmm. this last year. but, but like, like I like to believe that out of every for lack of a better word, failure is the opportunity. And I want to see how we as a country take advantage of that opportunity, so whether it's the racial healing uh reconciliation conversation I think needs to happen or the innovations that we find that families had to implement to, to survive all of this. I mean, I think there's something about that. I think we as a country, whether it's the, the Great Depression or even the Great Recession we had, we learned a lot. Um, I just wonder if we're ready to hear the truth about this experience.
0: Wow, a lot there, and I really appreciate you spending the time to talk with me through this today. It's already kind of gotten my gear spinning in some new directions, and hopefully listeners might be inspired to think about the, the work ahead of us and, and how they might show up and contribute. And I just want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a parting message.
1: You know, this work around diversity, equity, and inclusion is not for the faint of heart. Uh, this does require us to build the muscles, the, the spirit, the, the stamina that's necessary to work through it. The great thing is that we are not alone. Uh, there are other people who are struggling, who are uh, uncertain, who are scared. And we are much better together than we are alone. And so if you do nothing else but search for someone else who's also trying to make a difference, who, who might feel scared and alone as well, just like you, who maybe maybe they just don't know what's going on, but they want to know. I find make sure you go out and find someone who's wanting to do the same thing and get on the get on that gravy train together to figure out some solutions. Because doing it alone is not. We were never supposed to do this stuff by ourselves. But I think if you find other people who are committed to this work, whether it's in your church or synagogue, at your job, uh, where you have your kids play at the park, you'll find that there's a lot of people who are looking to make a difference. And I would encourage you to take that risk and reach out to someone in an attempt to make a difference.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for chatting today, Kazike.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation, man. Good conversation.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com